1: Hello again. Welcome to the minefields. We negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Khalid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. It was presumptuous of me to say hello again, wasn't it, Scott? Maybe this is the first time. <laughs>
0: it could be the first time. I mean, right. you like to you like to think that, that it's not just the same,
1: you know, bunch coming back week after week, but, you know, there's something kind of nice about that as well. Yeah. It could just always be someone who's listening to their second show. Yeah, that's right. And then after that, they tap out. Right. But then whoever it was from the week before, they've got one week left. And or, on.
0: or, or the idea—it's kind of like the experience of when you walk into a restaurant and there's nobody else there, and you think, "My yes. God, what have I missed?" So, yeah. simply by saying, "You know, welcome back again," or "You know, hello again," it's reminding maybe solitary listeners out there that you are in a room with <laughs>
1: other people. The food ends up being pretty good, after all. You're not going Don't to we... die of yeah. anything, or you're not Would going you to come say, down. Well, what a guarantee that is. Hello, listener. You're not going to die of anything while you listen to this. Um, When when I go into a restaurant and no one's there, my thought isn't, what have I missed? My thought is, why am I here? As in, is this a terrible place? And I didn't realise, is everyone but me in on this? That's my thought process. Okay. Interesting. You don't think so? Okay. Well, yeah. Hey, by the way, can I say, uh, I've received a surprising amount of correspondence already about our forthcoming... um, not quite a book club uh, show yeah. on Queen's set at Live Aid. Yeah. I think you've come up with something that's piqued people's interest here, Scott. I, I don't know if the show will be any good, but but the tease is great. <laughs> the tease is great. That, that could also be our tagline, you realise. The show mightn't be
0: any good, but at least the tease is interesting. <laughs> If only the T's were So, so yes, that's um, for those who missed it. We've, we've been doing this thing over the course of the year. We're going to do four in total. Uh, we've done a TV series, uh, HBO's uh, three series succession. We've done a book, Jane Austen's Emma. Next week, or the uh, 9th of November, uh, 10th of November, I beg your pardon, we're doing the 22-minute, 37-second set list that Queen performed at Live Aid in 1985. Um, Far less arduous in many respects than having to read Jane Austen's Emma, although, (laughs) you know, it's up to you if you want to decide if that's sort of more beneficial or less. But it is astonishing. I mean, even speaking as somebody who's not really a Queen fan, uh, I mean, for me, I I would like to say
1: that they peaked with Brighton Rock. uh, (laughs) And... Do you, do you know that's a big call because the next year they released Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, I know. I, I know, which is which is why I think no, that's a ridiculous thing to say. But I mean, Brighton
0: Rock is such a piece of sublime theater. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just kind of think that everything after that is either sort of struggling to reach its heights or trying to replicate something irreparable. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, 1985, they steal the show at Live Aid, which is really saying something given who else. Was uh, yeah. performing, um, and so what? What we're going to do? Uh, Live Aid itself was an ethically overdetermined event. Uh, it was convened in response to a heartbreaking, backbreaking, soul-destroying uh, famine that had engulfed Ethiopia. It was one of the first great acts of mass philanthropy. Um, come along, enjoy, donate, and you get to listen to the best music anywhere in the world. What was it? Well, it's something like 1.9 billion people ended up tuning in or watching. It was something astonishing. Mm. Um, So there's already something kind of morally, let's just say interesting about the event. But what about the performance itself? Is there anything? And again, I'm kind of tiptoeing around. Is there anything morally interesting in the performance? And I think there is. Um, And uh, we're just going to have to see where it goes. Can can I just say, for your sake, Willie, and for the sake of our listeners, I've been sweating for weeks on a guest. My God, who on earth are we going to get to talk about this? And uh, I'm not going to spoil who it is, but I mean, you know— uh, I think Brian May may have been the best thing that we could have gotten. Uh, <laughs> the guy that we've gotten is 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 a pretty near second, and I'm. I'm wow, really,
1: Roger Taylor. Wow, Roger, that's Rooker, that's, right. Right. that's
0: right. I'm really excited. Hey, can I also just say though, since we're mm. well, it's the start of November, we're on the downward stretch to the end of the year. Mm. Uh, can I give a little plug for the last of our not quite book club series? But, oh, okay, sure. Have we discussed this? Yeah. Of course mm. we have. What do you, well, okay. well if, if you don't remember, then you're going to be, you know, indentured <laughs> to it uh, okay, sure. re- regardless. Um, so coming up on the 8th of December, so it's going to be our second last new show of the year. Our, so we've done a uh, television series. We've done a novel. We will do a rock performance. We're going to finish with a movie and the movie that we're doing was actually su- suggested, Willie, by your mum. And it became such <laughs> an, uh, an irresistible option that I think we've just had to go with it. It's Stanley Kramer's Academy Award-winning 1967 film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, and Catherine Halton. Um, It's a troubling film. It's a film that in many respects hasn't aged particularly well. It's a film that is very difficult to watch in certain respects. It's a film with, to some extent at least, even if it had good moral intentions, has dubious moral credentials. And yet it's an astonishingly persistent film, Uh, a film that keeps being riffed upon in various ways in popular culture. Uh, And it's something to which I think we're well advised at this particular moment to return to. Not in a necessarily celebratory way, although not in a wholly uncelebratory way either.
1: Anyway, it's gonna be a hell of a lot of fun. Could be fun. I like the implication that mum's turning up to the production meetings, but I'm not. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> it's quite fun. Um, all right, gee wow, we're doing so we're doing a couple of book club things quite quickly. Uh, this is surprisingly organised for us. But I will say this. For now, forget about Guess who's coming to dinner. You have mm-hmm. other homework. Queen's set at Live Aid, all 22 minutes, 37 seconds of it.
0: And it's worth it. I actually subjected my kids to it last night, and my my oldest boy was really dubious, Yeah, and then midway through, I just watched this smile spread across his face, and I'll tell you the moment that it was, Yeah, it was Brian May's second guitar solo in Hammer to Fall. Oh, okay. The smile... The smile across his face was astonishing. He was wholly unimpressed by Freddie's antics on stage, <laughs> by his use of the sawn-off uh, microphone uh, stand, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and by his that wonderful little backwards prance that he does. <laughs> um, neither of the boys liked the rockabilly uh, crazy little thing called love, but both of
1: them were totally enthralled by Hammer to Fall, which I thought was pretty yeah, interesting. But, so. well, there you go. It's probably the least famous song in that set. I know. Um, all right. Should we do a show today? I think we should. Or should we just keep doing an ad for future shows? <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is a really interesting one,
0: actually. We've been thinking about doing this and talking about doing this for a while. We were going to do it maybe as something like a two-part series, but because the end of the year is rushing up on us so quickly, we thought it might actually be morally instructive and intellectually productive to put both into a single show and see what comes out in the middle. So if anybody's been paying really any attention to the news over the last, let's say, I mean, over October in particular, although it's been going on for a little bit longer than that, it's been really interesting to watch the way that certain climate catastrophe activists whose souls and consciences are obviously seared with the knowledge of what's being done to our planet and the future that awaits us have engaged in a different form of climate awareness activism. Um, It's worth pointing out that in places like the UK, the United States, the forms of disruption that groups like Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil have engaged in in the past have become increasingly uh, illegal and the political response has has become increasingly punitive. And so it's been curious to watch the way that they've moved their activism from the streets. And, I mean, we've seen it in Australia, here in Brisbane, there in Melbourne. We've seen it uh, um, uh, in Sydney. We've seen it in London, in Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles. People clogging up streets, bringing traffic to a standstill uh, at the most inopportune moments in order to say that uh, the status quo, business as usual, can simply not go on. What's been really interesting, though, is the way that these climate activists have moved from the streets now into art galleries. And so uh, over the last few months, uh, let's call them works of uncontested world historical importance have been targeted. Uh, Works by Vincent van Gogh, Claude Monet, Sandro Botticelli, Pablo Picasso there in Melbourne, uh, Leonardo da Vinci have had their surfaces uh, sprayed with uh, instant mashed potato in one instance, or in several instances, uh, a can of tomato soup in other instances, in most cases.
1: Yes. Oh, go on. O- often not their surfaces, though, is, I think it's important to say. Yes, because they've been behind some kind of protective Yes, covering. with yeah. the knowledge of the people who are doing this. So um, at least some of the time, I don't know if all of the time, but they've said, no, we know that it's behind this protective thing, so it's not actually doing damage to the painting. Yes. I don't know how relevant that is, but I think it's, you know, It's worth knowing. So it's not defacement per se.
0: And I think to say that it's not vandalism is also important. It's not like something of unquestionable value is being destroyed at a whim or just to make a point or in some kind of anarchist explosion. It's nothing like that. Uh, Instead, it's something that is meant to be an object of veneration, something that's meant to attract a sense of uncontested and uncontestable value, is being targeted as being relatively Worthless. And I think this is the crucial moral point. So let me just, uh, sorry, I should say relatively worthless in light of the shared future that awaits us. In other words, there's a kind of evaluative gesture that's going on here. Um, if I'm reading these protests or these displays, these performances rightly... It's seeming to say something like in the future, something as simple, something as common, something as everyday as instant mashed potato will be just as valuable as a work of art. Something like a can of tin soup uh, is going to be just as valuable because we will be struggling for food. How can you allow this charade of business as usual to keep on going. Let me read you, Walid, what one of the protesters at the Museum Barberini in Potsdam said. I mean, it's quite eloquent. People are starving, people are freezing, people are dying. We are in a climate catastrophe and all you are afraid of is tomato soup or mashed potatoes on a painting. This painting isn't going to be worth anything if we have to fight over food. When will you finally start to listen and stop business as usual? So this would be, let's just call it the ethics of radical disruption. I think mean, there's a little bit more going on than that, but let's just sort of put it that way for now. I mean, one of the big questions I think has been, uh, to what extent will this really arrest people's attention? I mean, it's arrested
1: the media's attention, but will people be, oh, I never really thought of it that way? Can I pull you up on that? Please. Has it arrested the media's attention? It's been widely reported. That's not the same thing. True. I mean, it's spectacle. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So fair. it attracts the media's gaze. It sort of um, okay. Nicely it creates media content. Is that the same thing as arresting the media's attention?
0: And given the sheer number of things that are competing, uh, I mean, it has been widely reported. It has been, I'd say, for the most part, reported fairly negatively. But it certainly has become a media spectacle. I think, yes, you're right. That's a much better way of putting it. Right.
1: So spectacle is different to attention, I think. Yes, it is. Yes, I agree. Just because, I mean, what you just read out, I think a lot of people listening to this show would say that's the first they've heard of that. Mm. Okay. Would that be fair? Yeah, probably. What, because it's been reported widely as defacement, as vandalism, as a stunt? Well, not even as anything. It's just you know what happened. Okay. And then you move on and people draw their own conclusions as to what it is.
0: Okay. Hmm. There's another response. And let's say that, and by response, I mean response to the prospect of climate catastrophe. The reality, the moral reality, let's put it that way, of, of climate change or of what we are doing. I, I think, can, can I suggest a different way of maybe just pivoting slightly, a different way of framing the problem? It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, different, it's a different response to a sense of the moral consequences of the expensiveness of our living, the expense uh, of the way we have come to live and the extent to which that cost is being borne by others, humans and non-humans. There's another response to it, which I think is kind of interesting as well. And that's the response, if, if we can think of, say, Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, as, if you like, a hot, passionate response. How can you not see? How can the enormity of what we are doing to this planet not sear itself onto your souls? The other response is a rather more cool response. Uh, I'm I'm not evaluating it uh, any more than I'm evaluating the first by saying that. But it's the response that says uh, our passions can sometimes get in our way a partial way of looking at the world and a devotedness to a particular cause or a particular movement or a particular charity can blind us to, quite frankly, more efficient and more effective ways that we can be doing good for a great number of people and a great number of non-human creatures. This would be the response. If the first is the, the uh, response of extinction rebellion, this is the response of what's sometimes called effective altruism. And that response is predicated not so much on disruption, but let's put it this way, it's predicated on the notion of continuity. Uh, the best way of doing the most good for the most number of people and beings is by ensuring that those who have money are giving that money at a rate that is sustainable and feasible to those organizations that are most efficient and effective in the way that they use that money in order to bring the most well-being to the greatest number of people and non-human beings. Is that a, is that a fair way of characterizing effective altruism, do you think? What, that it's about continuity? That it's about continuity, yes. So, so I mean, one of the—you you may reject this— but to some extent, uh, effective altruism strikes me as almost a secularized version of certain forms of religious uh, giving or religious alms giving. There's, there's a notion within the Christian tradition, I think there's some overlap within Islam, but not in quite the same way, uh, that uh, because all of one's money belongs ultimately to God, uh, God has first rights on a certain portion of that money, mm-hmm. hence 10%. And by giving that, you are then liberated. You're made free to use the rest of the money for, quote-unquote, secular things. Now, within Islam, as you've discussed previously, that the giving sanctifies or cleanses the rest. Without that initial act of giving, of almsgiving, uh, the rest of the money becomes uh, tainted or dirty. Have I yeah. said that right? Yeah, yeah. So this almost seems to be a kind of secularized. It's not making a total claim on your attention, or a total claim on your moral concern. Instead, it's saying, give what you can. If you're in an affluent country, what you can should be a decent amount. And make sure, and we'll guide you, make sure that you give that not to the causes that generate the most emotion or that pull on your heartstrings, but rather that are most efficient and effective in doing the most good for the most people and things. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair description. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out whether continuity is the heart of that. So much as pragmatism and perhaps an insight into human... Yes, nature. absolutely um, right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, what I think we're looking at here is just two different models of what we think is persuasive. Hmm. And even that may not even be at the heart of it now that I think about it. I mean, the, the first model that you described, the sort of um, disruptive model that takes a more radical posture. Sometimes I wonder whether it's calculated as persuasion or it's calculated uh, instead around a concept of expression. Mm-hmm. Right? That, Interesting. Um, by doing this, we simply express the depth of our pain, the depth of the crisis, yeah. the seriousness of the issue. And whether or not that persuades you is almost beside the point. Um, Besides the point's too strong.
2: Well, well. Whether or uh,
1: not that I mean, you, persuades you is not is not the where we begin. You may be um, right. You, you you may be right, and that may be reflected in the fact
0: that the response that's called for is totalizing. Hmm. Just to the extent that the response that's called for is uncompromising, it may well push people away at the very moment
1: when something like goodwill might be on offer. Which is what the second approach is instead banking on. That's it's right. It's saying people can be persuaded, people can be won over, but you need to offer them something that's consistent with their values, their interests, uh, their understanding of the world. What you cannot do is encounter them with a radically different understanding of the world and the situation and just demand that they acquiesce because you've done something radical. Hmm. You will instead most likely get a response, which is to regard you as annoying and silly yes, rather true. than persuasive. Nicely said. So... I gather really they're the the two approaches, and they're kind of two different models of persuasion, if you like i know i've when I've interviewed, for example um, climate activists, not necessarily who belong to extinction rebellion, but sort of of that style, um, they do say that um, you know radical action brings change, and they they sort of just state this as a um, as some kind of given, which I think is unproven at least in the way that they're using it. Mm-hmm. So they will say that at some point, and at some level, they obviously believe that this is capital N necessary. Um, But I I don't know exactly what evidence they're drawing on for the success of these methods, Mm -hmm. particularly given that they're not entirely new. Yeah. Um, It is a normative. I I mean, it is a normative
0: claim, though, not simply a pragmatic claim or a political claim, Uh, the idea that radical action brings about change. I mean, what they... I mean, that is... That is a statement of desire and a normative commitment. It's
1: not presented as such. No, I realize
0: that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I I like the way that you've kind of pivoted this around the idea of two different modes of possible persuasion or appeal. I think it might be also helpful, though, to uncover a little bit that there are two competing epistemologies that lie beneath them. So, uh, I mean, effective altruism is a very, very simple, I think, epistemology to lay out. Uh, It is essentially a kind of Oxford positivist epistemology, which says that fundamentally the world is easily interpretable. It is there as a bundle of facts that can be grasped and within which a well-informed will can act within. Um, in other words, the the idea is the problem isn't understanding the world uh, or of, of bringing a kind of normative value onto the world, but rather simply responding to the world by means of what almost seems to be a kind of mathematical or economic calculation. Um, as Peter Singer sometimes put it, saving three people is unquestionably better than saving one person. Saving X number of people from a horrifying disease is unquestionably better than saving one person, for instance, uh, from uh, life-impairing cataracts. Um, so, so there is that kind of evaluative, you know, these are all relatively easy judgments to make. So there's a kind of quantification of good. And once you quantify the good, then the kind of action that needs to take place simply presents itself. So that would be, that's the epistemology that's underlying something like effective altruism. And again, I'm I'm not necessarily doing this in a kind of evaluative way. The epistemology that underlies something like Extinction Rebellion, I think is very, is different. And to my mind, very, very interesting. The idea is there are facts about the world that are there for everyone to see. These are facts about the world that have been rendered invisible through lethargy, through apathy, through various uh, commercial interests that have a real interest in hiding the means of the production of their goods and the, uh, the basis upon which they make their profits from view. But there are also certain things about the world that are only visible to a heavily informed, deeply value-inflected way of seeing the world. In other words, there are certain commitments to persons and to things and to the idea of a future that are so binding, that are so powerful, that they give you different eyes. I mean, we, we could even say that, given the fact that the philosopher king of Extinction Rebellion, a guy named Rupert Reed, uh, a wonderful Wittgenstein scholar. You could say that the philosophy underlying Extinction Rebellion is that of Wittgenstein coming to see the world in a different way. And once you see the world in a different way, it is a different world. And then that becomes the world in which you must act. And then the other would be, you know, the world of, say, A.J. Eyre, for instance, uh, where the nature of the world is not up for question. We simply need to strip things back to a kind of bare evaluative calculation and then act within the confines of that calculation. I think there's something there, Waleed. The presence of passion as illuminating a world and the absence of passion as making the nature of the world or the nature of reality clear. I think there's something there that's also really interesting.
1: Well, in that the the pragmatism of that second approach is effectively seeking not to disrupt the way we view the world, either out of a belief that that would be a silly idea because that would take far too much work and is unlikely to succeed, or a belief that the way we see the world is by and large accurate. Yeah. And that there's no guarantee that the more radical vision of the world is accurate or epistemologically unchallengeable. Mm. That's yeah. that's right. And I and, and what then makes i suppose the effective
0: altruist way of seeing the world so compelling for so many is that it is <clears throat> can I just say this? It is the moral philosophy you have when you don't that you can have when you don't have a moral philosophy otherwise. So it becomes the moral philosophy of mathematicians and economists and engineers. There's no reason that people like Elon Musk, for instance, uh, have come to swear by effective altruism or that Bill Gates uh, and Warren Buffett have been described by Peter Singer as the world's greatest effective altruists. You can have that kind of moral comportment towards the world that lends itself to a kind of calculative uh, disposition. I mean, the criticism, of course, goes. That that just means that what you're doing is you're giving license for the status quo to continue. People can continue to make their profits as long as they use a portion of those profits in order to do
1: whatever good they can. Mm. I'm just thinking, I mean, what you're really describing is a dividing line that splits radical from more moderate politics generally, right? Yes, I'm, it's true. On just about any issue. Um, you could play out a version of this. And I think in the end, all the epistemic arguments you want to have about it, I think it get reduced to the way I described it earlier, which is a pragmatic calculation as to what's likely to work. My question really for those who adopt a radical posture would be, if you could be guaranteed this would be less effective, would you still do it? Now, obviously, they don't believe it is less effective. I've got a feeling they might still do it.
0: Yeah, you see, I think the question then becomes: How do you measure
1: efficiency or effectiveness? Sure, Th- that's why my question was predicated. Was yeah, at, at the start of it. Whereas for the effective altruists, it is predicated entirely on this idea. Yes, that's right. That's right. That this would be more effective. Mm-hmm. If you said to them, "This is definitely less effective," and I can prove it, then they would have to change course by their own lights. They would have to do so. Hmm. Sh- i Am not we sure. Are going to guess? Yeah, I think we should. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure. Why? What's wrong with that?
0: Because there are things that are quote-unquote good without being measurable in that same way. So, for instance, you could say that certain forms of social transformation, the coming to see the world in a different light through a different gaze, the things that have been rendered socially invisible suddenly become radically, troublingly, disturbingly visible in the way that for instance uh, some civil uh, some uh, human rights some uh, animal rights activists have done or the way the civil rights movement did making certain things so uncomfortably radically visible that the entire world comes to look in a different light that Ooh, that may that's... well set certain measurable political or legislative changes back by a period of time it may, you may well sacrifice short-term gains and certain things being made better for many in the short term. And yet without that social transformation, uh, there's a kind of moral stupor that's allowed to persist. Uh, and maybe even some things are radically worse for a
1: longer period sure, of time. Sure, I just don't think that's the effective altruist's argument. I think that's the more radical argument.
0: Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. No, no.
1: Yeah, which is what what I was saying. I think the effective altruists would have to believe that this is a more uh, effective, pragmatic path. Okay, Otherwise, they have no leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. Um, Shall we bring in a guest? Uh, Yes. Uh, Garrett Cullity
0: is Professor of Philosophy and the Director of the Centre for Moral, Social and Political Theory at the Australian National University. Garrett, thanks so much for joining us on the minefield.
2: It's a pleasure, Scott, and hi, Waleed. So um, we've kind of
0: dropped you a little bit into a quagmire Uh, by bringing these two options together, I don't think we're claiming, I don't think either of us believe that these are the only two options. These are the only two games in town. But I guess part of my hope, uh, by bringing these two uh, serious and I think morally serious responses to the reality of climate devastation and the reality of the expensiveness of human living on particularly the non-human world, um, my hope was by bringing these two things together Is there some way that maybe we're missing, not so much a third path, but bringing them together allows us to see something that each is missing and something that maybe by holding them both together, we can see might guide a more thoroughly defensible moral response. Is there, where where do you think we should proceed with this?
2: Yeah. So the way I would approach this is to say there's a political context for all of the suffering and injustice and um, harm that exists in the world. And really, w- one, one way of looking at these two approaches is um, the um, ex- Extinction Rebellion people are trying to say to us, wake up, see, see the political context, see the need for action. We've, we've got to change the way we're doing things. And I think what the effective altruists are doing is, is to say that there are questions you can ask yourself as an individual which fall short of saying, what can I do to actually change the political structures that are making the world a, a bad place in various respects? Um, and what lies within my causal scope for influencing the world? Um, and are there things that I can do which, which may not actually uh, change the structures that produce uh, suffering and, and harm? But can I uh, do something to make things a, a little bit better myself? And so they're, they're both kind of sitting on the outside of the political processes that that we really need in order to um, uh, change the world for the better and trying to affect them in, in two different ways.
0: So can I reflect back to you then, the way that I, in my sort of slightly demented way, uh, kind of interpret what it is that you're saying. Uh, so could, yeah. could it be then that what we're talking about is that if there is a criticism to which Extinction Rebellion— I'm saying this very, very, very generally. I mean, these are deliberately kind of stereotypes uh, or, or uh, all too brief uh, distillations. Uh, if there is a weakness uh, in the Extinction Rebellion position, it's that it can give rise to the charge that you are doing things that make yourself feel more morally attuned— to the egregiousness of what it is we are doing to the world, but may not lead to anything. And on the other side, the effective altruist side, you may well be doing things that are, quote-unquote, effective, in the sense that it gives rise to some kind of uh, ameliorative response to the reality of human and non-human suffering. But by doing that at a kind of distance, you may well be buying a piece to your conscience Uh, or buying yourself a kind of um, uh, get out of grief or get out of guilt free card uh, to which maybe you are not entitled. In other words, one is too preoccupied by the sense of grief and the other is maybe not preoccupied enough with a sense of radical grief.
2: Yeah, so that's, I I think, a way of articulating a thought a lot of us have when we zoom out to a really broad level and ask, so what What am I really able to achieve about the, the respects in which I think the, the world needs to be fixed? And it is possible to um, ask questions about uh, protest movements and, and also about charitable action as to the, the extent to which that's a kind of salve for the conscience rather than a, a way of actually producing large scale change. But I, I think, in both respects, one can reframe this slightly by asking, what am I actually joining in, in either case? Mm. And to see this uh, not so much as a, a kind of Goldilocks question where we've got the, uh, the, the hot action from, from uh, the Extinction Rebellion people and then the cool uh, rational action from the, the effective altruists and, and then thinking what we all ought to do is to hit some some kind of Goldilocks zone in the mm. middle, but that there are ways of engaging with the world as it is, which which all potentially have value. And what's important for for anyone who seeks to engage in some kind of collective uh, contribution to doing something is, what am I really trying to contribute to, and is this kind of collective activity, is that achieving anything of value? And uh, I think. Um, Uh, As you were pointing out previously, even in the the case of the Extinction Rebellion people, there is always something to be said in favour of a protest movement, of just speaking up and and giving a voice to um, something's being bad, even if you're sceptical about the extent to which you're expressing that is going to change things. Hmm.
1: Yeah, but it's it's about more than that, isn't it? I mean, um, it's about the reception of the message in the first place. I suppose it comes back to the little aside Scott and I had about whether or not this these sorts of protests had seized media attention or instead achieved media spectacle. Because if what the protest is attempting to communicate isn't being communicated, then even that value that we might want to assign the protest starts to wither, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and... Um Fair point. It's very difficult to measure these things, and um, with respect to any such action, I mean, t- take the, um, the suffragists of the early twentieth century trying to protest against the fact that they were disenfranchised. Uh, that certainly drove some opponents more strongly in the opposite direction. It confirmed the views of uh, some people already uh, thought what they did, and then the question is whether there are people in the middle. Um, who kind of wake up and think, yeah, actually there is something serious that's being expressed here, um, and just just manages to shift some of the momentum in the direction of people saying um, there is a point to the thought that business as usual, because of the intergenerational problem uh, with climate change, that there's a delay in the effects and so on. Uh, there's an inertia that needs to be shifted and. Um, pointing out that um, many people are oblivious to what Extinction Rebellion is doing um, and others are going to be pushed in the opposite direction doesn't necessarily stand in the way of there being some value to the attempt to grab attention. Mm. Um, And as you were saying earlier, the methods that are being used are actually intellectually quite interesting. Uh, The throwing of soup at paintings and so forth. Uh, interesting in the ways that you suggested, but also there's, there's the idea that here's part of the heritage, the valuable heritage that we've acquired and we're potentially passing on to the future. And uh, I think the issues around the environment we live in can be um, framed in that way as well. That uh, what we're doing is just in, in a sort of trivially consumptionist fashion. Just trashing an environment and then passing it on to the, the next generations in a, in a depleted way. There's a sort of symbolism around that uh, with but, these protests as well.
0: But then I think the radical question then becomes, and this is one of the criticisms that's been leveled at effective altruism, that effectively what it does is it says that the answer to the problem we face isn't radically less consumption, but rather consumption maybe not simply going on as it currently is, but consumption of a slightly different kind. So you consume, but you also donate. You continue to make money, but you simply give it. In other words, the answer lay further down the road that we're already on. It's kind of like buying a kind of solved conscience by uh, buying single origin coffee beans for the coffee that you're drinking from a disposable cup. Um, So there's a little something that you're doing that is quote-unquote good, but it's wrapped up in something that says, well, you're not really doing anything that different from what you'd be doing previously. Whereas what Extinction Rebellion is doing is it's trying to heighten something like the intolerability of the status quo so that any gradual amelioration, any gradual change simply makes what is tolerable last longer. Whereas by heightening the pressure, by saying that this simply cannot go on, much the same way that the civil rights movement, for instance, rejected uh, what Martin Luther King Jr. called the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and tried to heighten the visualized conflict um, uh, so that there were beatings on television. There were protests that elicited police responses on television so that what was tolerable uh, suddenly, was
1: regarded, was seen by many as being no longer sustainable. So that, but Scott, that don't, don't you think that example actually highlights the very real difference between the two? Go on. And the the effect that they would have on a watching audience. So in in the civil rights example, this was people creating protests that would then occasion police brutality, so that they were the victims of something in like before the eyes of the nation. Yes.
0: And there was a representative quality
1: to that. Yes, yeah. But they were be, the, the victims in the question of justice were literally embodied in the victims of each instance. Mm, true, right? At the same time, as the civil rights movement is making an appeal to that audience on the basis of a shared fraternity, mm. right? We are, we are your brothers. We are Americans. So, and we're we're appealing to you on that. That basis. Mm. In other words, really what they were asking for was not so much the radical disruption of the structures of society in toto, so much as the fulfillment of the moral promise of those structures or, or of those systems, right? You want a, a government based on the dignity of human beings and the, and the liberty of each human being then you need to fulfill that promise. Mm. The issue with the climate change protests is they're doing, it seems, neither of those things. Who's at the heart of the spectacle? Well, it's a painting. It's not the environment that is the victim of the broader question of justice. Um, It's not self-sacrificial in any kind of way that I think an audience would discern. And what's being asked for is not the mere fulfillment of a nation's promise or the fulfillment... Of the best possibilities of current arrangements, but rather their total upending. And so, for that reason, I just like I, I get the methodological connection you're trying to draw, but it seems that there's at a quite deep level they're methodologically opposed.
0: I have I have a response, but Garrett, I'd really be interested
1: in what you
2: have to say to that. The way I frame it on their behalf is there's an intergenerational That's right. problem yes. with with climate change, and. Um, I think this, this makes the civil disobedience element of Extinction Rebellion sort of Im- importantly different from other, you know, paradigm cases of si- civil disobedience in the past, where those of us who, who believe that political legitimacy comes fundamentally from a democratic uh, structure then make space for civil disobedience by by saying when you're not politically represented, then you have... Uh, no obligation to recognise the authority of the uh, political systems through which decision-making is is conducted. But then there's also scope for standing up against um, the exercise of political power to act unjustly towards someone outside the group. And if you frame the issues surrounding climate change uh, in terms of the current generation inflicting harm on people in the future and, and also... Uh, non-humans as well, then the case for civil disobedience comes from thinking of this as resistance to our imposing injustice on others in the future. And uh, the thought behind this movement is we've got to just inject a sense of urgency into the political decision-making that is going to uh, have to be made in order to solve the problem if there is any any such solution. (laughs)
1: Indeed, but that doesn't that underscore the differences and perhaps unavoidable differences? I don't mean this as a criticism so much as an observation. The differences between th- this sort of activism and the civil rights version of activism because the victims, the claim makers in the civil rights case were very present. The claim yep, makers it's... here are, are absent. In In the former case, they were claiming, mm. that that is the civil rights case, they were claiming a place in the system, in this case, they, there is no place in the system, and they're not claiming a place in the system. What they're seeking is the upending of the system. I, they're just unbridgeable, it seems to me. So, you know, that, that's not to say that what these methods have in common may not have something to commend them or, or anything like that. It's a separate argument, but. Uh, I just don't want to draw too strong a similarity here.
0: I don't, yeah, uh, I don't quite agree, Willie, because I, I, I think Garrett's point is absolutely right, that the young people are here who are doing the protesting, who are doing the performance, are here representative figures speaking up for the voiceless, let's just put it that way. They are representing, if you like, the future over and against the cosseted interests of the present. You could also say that they are risking a degree of harm or a degree of cost because they are being threatened with forms of imprisonment, with charges, with criminal records, and so on. Um, you could also say that their lives represent a certain sacrifice. They are abjuring the usual comforts that are often acquired and enjoyed by young people their age. Uh, in the interests of a kind of sacrifice in the interests of, of, of others. You could also say, Willie. and I, I don't want to push this kind of analogy too far, but I think it's probably worth saying, it is part of the charge, the, the moral uh, accusation of Extinction Rebellion, that those who are living in a feat oblivion to the reality of climate catastrophe suffer from a kind of moral blindness Maybe not of the same order, but certainly of the same variety as the moral blindness that inflicted the anti-miscegenationists, the segregationists who thought that uh, fully extending voting rights uh, and civic rights to African-Americans was also the end of something like American democracy. So I think there there are similar charges at all points. Uh, The question then becomes okay, the quote unquote upending of the system, to what extent is that a fulfillment of the moral reality of human community? Or to what extent is that a radical disruption of the status quo before the status quo gets disrupted uh, against our wills?
2: Yeah, I might just throw in the further thought. um, Just what is the system that Extinction Rebellion is trying to overthrow. And this is a question for them rather than for you, really. Um, But I'd say to to the extent that it's uh, pointing out that economically, we are going to have to devise uh, other ways to operate in the world on a global scale, um, then that's, that's the point we all need to absorb and work our way towards. But I'd say politically, there is no alternative to making decisions as a as a community and Hmm. potentially as a global community and deciding things together. Um, and in a way the, the frame to put this in and it's the same with the civil civil rights movement is, is the frame of a liberal democracy where, uh, what's being uh, pointed out is the way in which certain ways of, uh, pursuing democratic decision-making can themselves be oppressive because they don't uh, safeguard the rights of minorities. Um, And in a way, the young people of today are saying, uh, you comfortable older people uh, are actually making decisions which make sense to you. There's a majority of you um, and you're imposing severe costs on uh, those of us who are going to be inheriting what you leave behind.
0: And in fact, let me just push that one step further. In many respects, the quote unquote system or the status quo is predicated on a kind of interested invisibility. There are certain things that are assiduously kept out of view. Um so here maybe the proper analogy isn't so much with the civil rights movement, although again, making the legacy of racial cruelty and contempt visible, highly visible, physically visible was was indispensable for that movement's effectiveness. But here you could think of something like, uh, those forms of activism that seek to bring what is hidden in slaughterhouses and abattoirs or industrial farming to view in defiance of what are called ag-gag laws. Uh, You you could say that that making the moral realities of the world radically visible to citizens who have a say in the state of our common life, you could say that that becomes a kind of democratic responsibility. So that making that which is invisible— and therefore profitable, visible, and therefore morally dubious or objectionable, that then
1: becomes an essential moral task uh, for the very people who then have a say. Uh, sure, but, you know, but my, my point is the difference in the climate change case is that none of that's actually made visible. So when you throw, but the grief is the extent but, of but, the desperation is, and I think that that counts for something. No, I don't think it counts for as much actually. Hmm. Because if I can't... Say I'm a, I'm a casually distant observer or I'm someone that you're trying to wake up. In the case of, say, the animal welfare stuff, I've got a very graphic illustration of what you're talking about. I can latch onto that very quickly. I can see that animal being tortured, right? In the case of the civil rights movement, I can see violence being enacted on these people and what they're, all they're doing is protesting, so I can see that. Here, I'm seeing someone throw soup at a masterpiece. They're, they're so incomparable. I, I'm not, like, as a um, as a vision, mm. right, as a, uh, I hesitate to use this word, but as a spectacle. Mm. They're just incomparable. They're, they're not making transposable points, really, in, like, visually speaking. They're not using a visual language that works in the same way. I don't mean this as a criticism, but... This is one of, I think, the big problems with climate change is unlike the crises that really seize our imaginations, it is not immediate and it doesn't have a great series of images to engage us, with the possible exception of natural disasters where we join the dots, which is why you see, for example, concern about climate and even voting on climate change goes up in Australia mm. at times of drought or when there have been terrible fires yeah, that's right. or at times of, fl- because that is where the image, like that's the image that is the equivalent of what you're talking about in the animal welfare case or the civil rights case. But none of these protests tap into those sorts of images when they're enacted because they can't. I, I, I'm not blaming them for that. There's just no way for them to enact that sort of thing. I mean, if it was dumping a whole lot of dead fish in it that had come out of a toxic river, like we saw with that fish kill from mm. when was that? A couple of years ago. Yeah, think? that's right. That seizes the imagination in a particular way. But I, I just don't know that the claim can be made here.
2: Mm. Yeah, and it's a. I suppose it's a general moral predicament that activists face. Um, the there, there's only a certain number of images of uh, smokestacks followed by you know f- floods. The, those images on your TV screen that you can absorb and be moved by, just as uh, in the past there've been only a certain number of images of um, uh, famine victims hmm. that you can absorb yeah. before you switch off. So, so the Method that's used, and th- th- this also, I-, I suppose, is at the basis of the effective altruists movement, is to try and make salient uh, the reality of uh, reasons that are at-, at arm's length from you, either in physical space or in time. Um, and I suppose it's part of all of our sanity and functioning in the world that you can't hold all of the um, disastrous things that are happening in the world in your head and be in an a continued state of uh, motivational alertness. Uh, we, we need that kind of space in order to have a, a functioning life. Mm. Um, but I, I think a, a compelling diagnosis of why the climate predicament is such a difficult one is this uh, time delay between the actions we're taking now and the uh, effects and um, the, their reality in the future.
1: Mm, and how abstract it is. It's, it's kind of like it's yes. a problem that's specifically designed to get around the human mind and, and the human capacity to respond, which is why, one yeah. of the reasons I think it's so devilishly tricky.
2: Um, devilishly Garrett. tricky in that way and, and also yeah. in the need for completely global yeah. um, political yes. action, which is a problem we just haven't solved.
1: Well, we don't have political structures that work to that. No. Them really yeah and we never have I mean this is the thing Garrett I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there because we are out of time thank you so much for lending us your expertise and your thoughts it's been wonderful it's
2: been a pleasure talking to you both thank you
1: Garrett Cullody is Professor of Philosophy and the Director of the ANU's Centre for Moral Social and Political Theory our guest for this week's edition of The Minefields. we're done for now we'll see you soon